All right, if you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles with me this morning, it won't take you long to find the passage. Turn to page one of your Bibles, and I'll read for us in just a moment. Uh, from the beginning, I mentioned last week that today we are starting a new series for the summer, and the name of the series is There's a Place for Us, a Biblical Theology of Place. Now, if you recall, last summer, uh, we did a similar type of thing with clothing. The name of the series was Clothed in Christ, a Biblical Theology of Clothing. And, and just so you know, uh, I've got several more of these lined up for the next couple of summers, things that start us off in Genesis and take us all the way through uh, the scriptures. So probably next summer will be one on food and drink. Uh, and then uh, the summer after that, we'll be talking about the body uh, itself, a biblical theology of food and drink, a biblical theology of the body. And when I use the term uh, biblical theology, I, I don't mean simply what does the Bible have to say about a given topic, as if the way you did a study like this was to look up the word place in your concordance and kind of take all of those verses, dump them into a blender and come out at the end with a biblical smoothie uh, about place. Biblical theology is a little bit different than that. Biblical theology, instead of blending everything together, kind of looks at how a theme develops over the course of Scripture, longitudinally over time. So how does it, how does it start here and begin to grow and develop and get to a more mature place? And in particular, maybe it would be helpful this way, if you think of one approach as a smoothie, maybe it would be helpful to think of biblical theology as kind of courses in a meal. And the courses of the meal are all designed very deliberately, even what you drink and the order they come in, in order to get you to the piece de resistance, that, that culminative, that wonderful part of the meal that you're going to enjoy the most. And with respect to biblical theology, that piece de resistance is always our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom, by whom, and for whom all things were created. So they all find their consummation in him. If all roads lead to Rome, all biblical passages lead to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so biblical theology kind of traces that development along the way and sees how an idea grows and shows us Jesus in particular. Does that make sense? The difference between those two things? That was the best I could come up with by way of a, a metaphor to kind of explain it. Let me begin then by reading from the beginning. The creation, if you will, of place. The creation of place in, by, and for Jesus. Okay, this is the word of the living God, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, we could go on, uh, but let me skip now to the next page, Genesis chapter 2, and I want to read for us verses 4 through 9. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything's in place. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your mighty word. Uh, thank you for guiding us into all truth. And as we begin today at the beginning, we pray that you would help us to delight in you, to be thankful for the world that you have created, for our place in this world, for your goodness manifest to us. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that it would refresh us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what if you arrived at your place in the new heaven and new earth? New heaven and new earth spoken of in Revelation 21, 22. What if you arrived at your place in the new heavens and the new earth, and your place was essentially like an inexpensive hotel room? Hey, you had a key, you had a swipe. Oh, you probably didn't need a key. You probably need a swipe. But you go into your place, the place prepared for you, and it's generic. It's got a bed there, a mattress. The mattress is kind of soft. It's got shades, and it's got carpet, and it's got uh, some kind of cover on the bed that are all very indistinct, very bland patterns. And of course, it has one chest of drawers in front of you, and it's got a desk and a desk chair sitting there, and it's got one very generic picture up above your bed of a flower or perhaps of some type of scenery from maybe your, your local place on earth, where you were from. That's, that's all that's in the room. What would your reaction be? 
Well, well I, I suspect this. You would be, of course, you would be glad to be in heaven and not to be in hell. You would be glad to be in the place where God's people are and where God is dwelling with his people. You would be delighted to be there. But, but if that was your place, if that was where you were going to spend eternity, I suspect that there would be in us just a little bit of disappointment with the place itself, with the look of the place, with the feel of the place. And the reason for that is this. From page one of the Bible onwards, God has instructed us to expect more. More than that. God has given us every reason to expect greater beauty in the place that is being prepared for us. In the beginning, we, that is we humanity, we were gifted place. And then we were promise place. We have a need for place. We have a longing for place. And in Genesis and in Revelation, what we discover is that the place that God prepared and is preparing for us is, in fact, beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Now, I know this idea of a biblical theology of place is a little bit unusual for us, and some of you might be wondering, what, where are we going with this? What, what exactly are we talking about with a biblical theology of place? So what I'd like you to do to help you to, to grasp this series and where we're heading in this series is I want to give you three pins that you can put on a map of the Bible and a map of time and let you know where we're going exactly. Three passages, they're going to help to inform you of exactly what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months uh, together. All right, pin number one. Pin number one goes in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, pin number one goes right where we read this morning, a place called Earth and a place called Eden. Put pin one, one there. Put pin number two in the verse that is on the front of your bulletin, John 14, 2 to 3. Jesus is on his way, as he speaks these words, to Golgotha, to the place of the skull. Through the place of the skull, he will enter into the place where he belongs, which is to say, at his father's right hand. He is heading to his father's right hand, but he has to go through the place of the skull to get to that place. And he says, in effect, that which is the reason and that which is the promise for that type of journey for him is because I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, so pin number one, creation of a place. Pin number two, Jesus in a place, heading towards a place, promises a place for us. Pin number three, pin number three goes in what we've already read together, Revelation 21 and 22. And that is a place called the new Jerusalem, called the new heaven and the new earth, wherein the dwelling place of God is with men. Hey, those, those, are your, those are your three points in time, your three passages in the Bible, your three places. You, you, can, you can put a pin in them on a map, you can tie yarn around them to mark out what is our beginning point, what, what, what is 
the route through which we must go, which is the cross, and what is the destination? Where are we heading? That's our travel itinerary for the next couple of months. Now, some preliminary notes on that. One preliminary note is there are lots of other pins, places in the Bible that we're going to put along the way that are going to help us to understand this idea of place. Preliminary note number two is this, that the, the line runs through your backyard. The, the line of place, the itinerary of place, runs through your apartment. It runs through your town, Conshohocken. It runs through our state. It runs through this building right here. We are in place right now, in a place in place right now. We are not merely in this uh, this study, going to be looking at some kind of a book about travel, kind of a history book on Lewis and Clark and how they cross the continent. Instead, we are, in fact, in place, in time, right now. And so these other places should be impacting how we view our place now and what we do in our place now, place is part of the story, and we are in place. Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Uh, if you didn't know where that came from, you might think that was the beginning of a horror movie. Or, or perhaps a movie uh, about sharks. You, you could read that and expect the Jaws theme to come up. Da-dum, da-dum. Or, or you could expect the, the shadow of a megalodon to come across the screen when you read those words. Uh, formless, void, darkness, depth. That's not enticing. It's not supposed to be enticing force. It's not an inviting picture. You, you don't read that and think, well, gee, that'd be nice. It'd be, it'd be nice to be there. Those were the good old days when the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. No one thinks that. This is ominous. It is threatening. It is chaotic. It is unruly. There's even a malevolence about it. It's disordered. It's undeveloped. It's raw. It's churning. It's foreboding. In Jeremiah, the prophet reflects on this primordial chaos. It's recalled as he describes the desolation of the people because of their rebellion, because of the sin of the people. It, it goes back to a world that is like this, formless and void. Listen to the way he says it. This is Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 22 to 23. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. And they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good? Last week's sermon. But how to do good? They know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form 
and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. See, in, in the desolation caused by sin and by wickedness and by evil, then these words are recalled. This image is recalled of the world before God began his speaking into it. In, in a world without form and void, there is no place for us. No place for us. In fact, if you go on in Jeremiah, he, he says, two verses later, I looked and behold, there was no man. In a world that is without form and void, there is no place for us. If somehow we were able to be picked up and placed into the middle of it, we would be consumed. We would be swallowed. There would be nothing of us. There's no place to stand. We sink in the midst of such a world. The earth was without form and void. That is to say, it was inhospitable and uninhabitable. Inhospitable and uninhabitable until God spoke. Until God spoke, and when God spoke, he laid the foundation of the world, he determined the measurements, he sunk the bases, he shut in the doors, pardon me, in the sea with doors, prescribed limits for it, and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You stay back there, because I'm establishing something, a place here. That's Job 38 that I'm quoting there. Psalm 104 says, the seas fled at your rebuke. You get the idea of the unruliness of the seas until God speaks to them. Peace, be still, right? Until God says to them, no, 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 that's your place. You stay right over there. Or Proverbs 8, he limits the sea so that the waters might not transgress his command. The wind and the wave have to obey his will. And he puts them to a particular place. He commanded the morning. He caused the dawn to know its place. And Genesis 1, 9 says to us that God said, let the heavens, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. You could say that the creation is the story of God in benevolence, in his kindness, in his goodwill, acting in beneficence, that is, good doing, getting everything in its place so that the earth, which had been prior to this uninhabitable, becomes hospitable. It becomes a place where you can live, where you can dwell, where you can have children and you can see them grow. Here, here this summary of it. This is from uh, Isaiah chapter 45, a summary of the way 
that God has done this. This is 45:18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God's creative work is making a place that can be inhabited. But creation, of course, is even more particular than that. Our place that God had prepared for us wasn't only the universe, all things. It, it wasn't only planet Earth. It wasn't only the land that he made, the earth that he made on this planet. Instead, what God does is he creates place within place. And that's a beautiful little concept to think about when you think about place. You know, I just, I just ran through a scenario with it, the universe, the planet, the land. All of that is place within place. But in particular, he creates a dwelling place for Adam and Eve and a garden called Eden. Now, now, now for a moment, think of it as place within place. And if you want another way to think of this biblically, think about it with respect to the temple for a moment. The temple is all about place within place. It's within the land that God gave to the people where he would dwell with the people in that land. It's within a particular city. Within that city, it's on a particular hill. On that particular hill, there is the temple. And within the temple, there's place within place, right? And, and in the center of it is what? The most holy place, the holy of holies. God didn't say to Adam and Eve, pick a place. Any place will do. Pick a, pick a travel itinerary. Pick, pick anywhere you want to be. Any place. <laughs> and I like this way if it, if it wasn't such an acting thing, but I almost look at it as God saying, places everyone. Every, everybody get ready. Everybody get in your place as I bring to consummation my creative work. And he placed the man in it. And it wasn't, ah, this'll do. It's, it's nice, it's, it's okay, I suppose. It wasn't that. It was good. It was very good. And, and we dare not lose the majesty of that word because of its commonality. Of course, the Garden of Eden lacked one important element, but uh, that was intentional and soon to be remedied by God. Two reminders. Two reminders, and these are reminders of things uh, because I know we've talked about them, whether from the pulpit or in Sunday school over the course of the years. The word for garden. The word for garden when the Greek Bible translates the Hebrew Bible, and frankly, the word for garden in many other places of the Hebrew Bible itself is paradise. The word for garden is paradise, and the idea is of an enclosed 
a hedged-in space of beauty and of fruitfulness, a fruitful garden, paradise. Second one, meaning of the word Eden. Okay, so garden, paradise. Eden, best we can get is the Hebrew word that is just like it. Delight. Delight. That's what it means. In uh, Proverbs chapter 8, I already quoted from it when talking about God setting limits uh, for the waters. But in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified, and it describes God in creation as delighting in wisdom. And at the same time, wisdom says she delights in the inhabited world. In the children of man, God delights in wisdom. Wisdom delights in this inhabited world, in this place that God has created. So, put that together, God created a delightful, beautiful, useful, productive, place within place, paradise of a place for humanity to flourish. A garden of delight, a place for man to dwell, for woman to dwell, for children to be, for trees to grow, for animals to dwell, and a place where God dwells. A place where God dwells. We, we can say that as long as we understand, of course, along with Solomon, that, that the whole earth can't contain him. The heavens of heavens can't contain God himself. But nevertheless, God was dwelling with them in the paradise. And if you understand that, then you begin to understand verses that we have looked at recently. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Or the end of Psalm 23. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Shalom was there in this place, and it is good, and it is very good. So with that, let me close today with some preliminary reflections on this. The introductory sermon, not trying to say everything today, but here are some reflections. First of all, place is essential. Place is important place matters. We are embodied beings, and embodied beings require place. We must be somewhere, and God has created it for us. Our bodies require place, and so do our spirits. Delight and flourishing come in a place and time, not in a vacuum, not in a vacuum. Delight and flourishing don't come in void and formlessness and deep darkness. They're not there. They come in a place and therefore place and the beauty and the order and the productivity of is not irrelevant, peripheral, dispensable, expendable, extraneous, superfluous, 
It's not frivolous. It's not merely incidental. And nor is it merely instrumental, something to be used. It is, in fact, integral for us as embodied image bearers. Can place become idolatrous? You bet it can. You bet it can. You can worship place. Could a whole sermon series like this be used to justify a kind of bourgeois life and acceptance of suburban middle-class American life? Could be. Don't let it be. It's meant to challenge us, not just to satisfy us. Those dangers notwithstanding, they do not diminish the importance of place. Second, creating place and keeping up a place takes work. That's true of us, and it's true of us because it was true of God. God's works, or his decree is executed in his works of creation and providence, creating the world and taking care of the world. And to do that takes energy, it takes wisdom, and it takes many hands. Humanity needed the garden, and the garden needed humanity. Almost it's said here in a way as if there was no man to work the ground, as if, well, it wouldn't have been worth creating that other stuff if there was no man to work it, if there was no man to take care of it. We needed the garden. The garden needed man for developing, for cultivating, for harvest, for planting, for expanding to cover all the earth. But it also required of the man and of the woman guarding. Guarding, keeping. You have to protect the place. That's why you put the ways behind the bars and behind the gates. You say no further to them because they threaten to encroach on the place. And that's why paradise, a garden as that is described, is always an enclosed space. I wrote that line. I wrote that exact line. It's an enclosed place. Now, I was sitting in my backyard. It's fenced in. I was sitting at a table because I thought that would be a good place to write about place. And I wrote that line, and a spotted lanternfly crawled right across the table in front of me. Um, and so, I guarded my place. I did what I was supposed to do with the nymph-spotted uh, lantern fly. Now, so you've got to guard a place from overgrowth on the one hand, sure, but from the serpent, from evil. The, the call here is you, you've got to preserve this place that I am giving to you. And of course, as we know, this place, this paradise will in fact be lost. And it will take the obedience of the second Adam to regain it and regift it. It will take the guardianship of the second Adam to re-secure and re-establish place for us and make the promise. I go to prepare place for you. 
That leads us to our final point. What did Adam and Eve do to earn the paradise of delights called Eden? What did they do to earn it? Nothing. Nothing. They, they did nothing. What did you do to earn a place in the paradise of God? What did you do? Nothing. Nothing. You did nothing to earn that place. Eden, the earth, was a gift. It was a land grant from the sovereign king, from their heavenly father, out of the overflow of the love of the father for the son and the spirit and all of that love flowing back and forth. We see the goodness and the kindness of the love of God. And Adam and Eve come into the world then as debtors. Not debtors to a cold-hearted bank who says, you got to pay me for this land that you've purchased. But instead, debtors to their heavenly father. Debtors to their heavenly father who looks for them and looks from them for love. They are debtors of love. Or to put it in a summary term, the debt that they owe God is glorify and enjoy me forever in this place. God got everything in place, everything ready. We are not in the Garden of Eden, but we too have place. We too have been emplaced. And so we ask ourselves, what is the call for us in the places where God has put us to be? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who are grateful, grateful for everything that is around us, all things great and small, for you have made them all. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people thankful for the places that you have given to us, appreciative of them, that we might offer good stewardship, the stewardship of love back to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.